Oh, hey, Mona. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. It's, How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Very good. I was here uh, playing some music uh, for for the people watching us before you joined in. So they're all ready. Great. Can you, um, sorry, it just went. It's it froze on my side. Can you can you hear me? Yeah, I, I I can hear you. I can see you. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Sorry. Yeah, you're you're my first guest on this show, by the way. Um, so, which we're, I'm launching uh, as part of Step Anywhere, um, and uh, basically, yeah, I'm calling it a Mette conversation. I don't do you, do you know what Mette is? Have you heard about it before? No, no. So, so this is this is Mette. I I this it's a Argentinian South American drink that's known a little bit in some parts of Lebanon, I think Jordan, Syria as well. Uh, so I, I used to love coffee before, uh, but it gi gives me like really bad acidity. So I had to switch something that's like better for the stomach. So I've been drinking this uh, for a long time. What, what do you drink in the morning? Do you have coffee or what kind of coffee? So this is my my remnants. <laughs> ah, okay, <laughs> so nice. The venti americano, and I still have a bit uh, that's uh, still chilled. But yeah, that's my that's my. Uh, nice. one. How many of those uh, do you have per day? It's not morning anymore. So. No, um, just one of those. And then I replace it with my uh, green tea for the rest of the day. So only oh, one of those. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to go. Uh, so this is, uh, Mom's World is like your second like successful big startup that you've done. You were a co-founder of Bait before, right? I was, yes. Um, and, and, so Rabia is your, your brother, right? He is. Oh wow! So you guys are a family of entrepreneurs. How many are you in the in the family? We're five, um, and yes, all, all five are entrepreneurs in some shape or oh, form. Oh my God! Wow! <laughs> Amazing. Blood, I think. <laughs> do you guys even see? Do you see each other, or you're always busy all the time? <laughs> uh, we actually see each other every day. Um, so uh, we have dinners as a family at least three times a week. Uh, we're five siblings. All of us live um, in close quarters. My sister lives nice. next door. Uh, Rabia lives a block away. So we're very close. So we see That's each other. Yeah. We see each other a lot. So we all have. We're we're like a big uh, gang. <laughs> <laughs> you are you are a big uh, startup as well again doing a lot of different successful startups ever yeah i think yeah. family is great and and you know i think covid one of the things that it helped is that it allowed us all to kind of like have more time to do that stuff so yeah i think i think it's pretty good nice yeah. so, and 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 how, how do you manage all this stuff? i mean are, are you uh like you've been basically running bait now mom's world uh big operation with family uh, how do you do that? So look, it's not, um, I think the, the entrepreneurial world and the startup world is not for everyone. It is certainly um, a juggle, um, a daily juggle, um, balancing priorities for, um, for yeah. your employees, your shareholders, your family, your children um, is never, ever easy. And it's a, it's, it's a daily balance of priorities, really. Um, and again, it's not for everyone. I think with Bait, it was uh, perhaps easier uh, because there was a bigger team that was involved in the initial uh, days of Bait. Um, it's a service business. So a service business is always um, a lot uh, less complex than an e-commerce business. Uh, so uh, the Bait journey was uh, 
um, I think, a, a funner journey, <laughs> if you want to use it. Um, Mumb world is certainly filled with complexity. Um, and we, we entered it when the ecosystem was much, much younger than with bait. So uh, that's, the, that's a good point. Yeah. And, and you have a massive operation. I mean, with e-commerce, you have you take care of warehouses, of inventory, of, you know, logistics. It's not just really the tech and the, and the, and the service that you're providing. Can, can you tell us a little bit about more? I mean, one of the things that I think a lot of the people listening to us uh, today uh, would like to learn from you probably on the on the details of your operation and how you're running it today. You told me before when we spoke that you know there's tons of challenges. Uh, some are in payments, which are better now than before, but in customer service and infrastructure. So, how if you can tell me a little bit, like how did you? Uh, how has this improved from when you first started? How did you face these issues? Uh, and, and how did you get to what it is today with operations specifically? Sure. So, um, and I, I've said this before, so anyone who's kind of listened to, to me talk has, has heard this uh, time and again. Um, e-commerce doesn't operate in a vacuum. E-commerce, um, for it to be successful, has to be part of an ecosystem that actually has enablers that will allow for success. So um, these enablers include last mile providers that are reliable and fast, include payment gateways that work, um, supply chain that's uh, sophisticated, uh, technology talent, because at the end of the day, e-commerce is driven by technology. We are a technology company first and foremost. Um, so all of these have to be uh, readily available in, in the ecosystem in order for you as an e-commerce player to tap into and to solve customer pain points. Um, if they don't exist, then you have to create them yourself. And in order for you to create them yourself, it takes time and it takes a lot of money. Um, and um, it's not always uh, possible. Um, so for us, when we launched Mums World at the end of 2011, um, we were the first vertical e-commerce play for mother, baby, and child in the Arab world. Um, last mile providers uh, were very uh, few um, and most of them, if not all of them at the time, were not used to the demands of e-commerce, which is speed, complexity, reliability, and bulk, bulk, um, and demand. So most of the last mile providers at the time were used to a slow movement of product. Yeah and not bulky. So that's something that we had to overcome. Uh, similarly, payment gateways, when we launched, there was one payment gateway. Now there are many more. Uh, technology talent was not readily available, especially in the type of technology that we wanted to build. Um, and so, again, um, to, to build it, we, it was very cash intensive. Um, we are, uh, you know, venture funded. Um, capital comes with track records. So again, as you build, you raise capital, then you build some more, then you raise capital, etc. Um, the long, the long and short of it is where we are today. Um, we have um, built our own. Uh, operational enablers, uh, particularly in markets like the UAE, which was our first market. And this is why the UAE market is, a, um, I would say, more advanced in um, operational or customer centricity than perhaps other markets. Uh, Saudi, um, we are now building and replicating what we have done in the UAE. Um, in other markets like Bahrain, Oman, Kuwait, um, again, we're following suit. Um, what are, what, are, what are the things that, so you said that some things you've built inside uh, internally and some things, you know, you, you work with partners on. Can you split those? What are the things that you've built uh, internally and what are the things and how did you decide just to like build something sure. internally? Yeah. 
So, so now, for example, in the UAE, we have our Yalla service. Our Yalla service is our um, delivery service that delivers anywhere from four to 12 hours. If you order something now, uh, you will get it in four to 12 hours, which is great for an e-commerce player. So if I want a stroller sent to me by tonight at 9 p.m., if I order a Yalla product, it's going to be delivered to me. And the reason it's going to be delivered to you is because we have built our own last mile uh, driver or courier system that that will allow us to deliver that type of speedy service to you. If we were dependent on uh, the careers of the world, we would not be able to achieve that. So that's an example of where we have in the UAE mobilized our own last mile to allow us to deliver to our customers much, much faster um, than, than uh, if we were dependent on others. Um, similarly, um, and we're doing the same now in Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia is our largest market um, and we're replicating that success in, in Saudi. Now it's a bigger market, so the complexity is greater. The other thing is supply chain. Today, we have 250,000 products uh, across 4,600 brands. These are brands that we source locally, regionally, and internationally. Um, in the past, we used to be very dependent on local suppliers for supply chain, um, and we were you know, ridden with out-of-stocks. Now we are less reliant on that because now we have outreach into global suppliers, uh, we have warehouses here in the UAE. We have warehouses in Saudi where we keep our own stock of exclusively supplied or sourced products, which allows us, again, um, better dependence on uh, on stocks and um, exclusive ranges that others don't carry. Yeah. So these are just a couple of examples of where so, we are better be able to cater to our customer. So from... from uh you know, payment, uh, last mile, uh, customer service. You know, so from these, are all these other than the last mile you mentioned, are all of the others you work with partners on? Um, so we work with uh, we work with partners uh, across the board. Um, like I said, e-commerce doesn't operate in a vacuum. Yeah. yeah. But we are, uh, you know, we, um, we have, again, of our 4,600 brands, um, many of them we source internationally as opposed to uh, sourcing from the local kind of supply chain. Um, we have exclusive arrangements that we have, again, locked in from global suppliers as opposed to necessarily from local suppliers, which allows us, again, to cater to the huge demand of customers locally and not be at the mercy of uh, out-of-stocks, which is what we faced in the past. Yeah, and for customer service, I think we spoke about that being a bit of an issue with the, is that something you do in internally or you work with an external or, or a mix of the two? I just want to get to understand, like, how do you decide on what to work with partners on? How many partners have you switched as well? I know, like, a lot of, you know, e-commerce players say we tried all of them, you know, and then we're back to the same ones again. Uh, so maybe some of that, if you be good to know, uh, what have you guys experienced within the... So look, the, the, the way I would answer that is, is, is very simple. And that is, um, at the end of the day, Mom's World um, is a customer-focused organization. We built this business to um, empower moms to make the most informed decisions for their children and really build um, uh, a, a platform that will make a mother's life easier um, by giving her access to the widest choice at the best prices, transparency, and a community that's unparalleled. 
unparalleled community to engage and to to uh, to share. In order to do that, we have to be very fluid as an organization and constantly edit and adapt our processes and systems to to allow us to achieve that objective. Customer service is the front line. You know, it's your it's your soldiers who are um, answering the questions, solving problems. Uh, you know, uh, catering to these these challenges. Now, in the time of COVID, to be very fair, um, everything fell apart in the sense that, you know, the time of COVID, none of us were able to move, including your customer care team who were suddenly uh, working from home, um, especially for the initial period. Um, and the problems during the time of COVID were very different. Um, you had lockdowns of roads, you had areas, entire areas completely uh, um, blocked from mobility. Um, and so we had to literally daily um, look at what's happening in the ecosystem and adapt as an e-commerce player. And a lot of things were out of our control. You know, we could not control road blockages. We could not control supplies uh, being blocked from coming into the, to the, to the country. All of that was out of our control. So what happens then? You depend on your frontliners, the customer care uh, soldiers who normally yeah. would get say a hundred questions, suddenly having 5,000 questions. <laughs> and you have, yeah, you have your customers are also very like you're probably difficult to have a like customer because they're all moms they're stressed out and and it's their right to be stressed out you have kids it feels a big responsibility you know in one way or the other for for on your side yeah i mean look you you have more demand more questions coming in some others saying how can i get my product how fast will it be? The roads are blocked. When am I going to get my diapers? So suddenly you have a higher frequency of questions and you don't have that many people to cater to that. Second of all, you have questions that frankly, because things are changing, you may not have the answers to. So if, if you know, Abu Dhabi to Dubai is closed today and the customer asks, when will I get my, you know, my product into Abu Dhabi? You actually don't know. Um, and so this is what happened during the time of COVID. It was certainly challenging for the e-commerce players like us. Um, and we were trying our best. I mean, we certainly mobilized more people. Um, all hands were on deck to try and creatively find solutions to, to the customer's problems. Now, having said all of that, uh, we've, we've you know, come uh, over that hill. Um, we've learned a lot of lessons. Um, customer care are, are critical for the organization. We will continue to adapt and improve our processes to cater to this fluid environment. Uh, but it's not, uh, it's not easy. And again, this comes back to the complexity of e-commerce. E-commerce is complex. It's, it's complex because it's constantly changing and there are many touch points that can go wrong and you have to be on top of these touch points day in and day out. So, so when you mobilized, like with during COVID, uh, when you had 5,000 questions coming in, you had to mobilize different, was that internal resources or you had to get in more external partners and support and customer service? So how, how did you manage, you know, to, to answer such a jump and, and the number of questions with all the challenges that you have? So uh, again, you know, without uh, you know, or, or rather sharing what's uh, what's needed, uh, we always work with outside and internal partners. We are too big of an organization, and this we're growing too fast to be uh, self-reliant only on on internal. So um, the company is growing too fast. Uh, so we do work with outside partners as well as internal partners. This is the um, this yeah. is how we scale up and, and 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 shrink down whenever we need to. 
And was it difficult getting more support because yes. everyone needs that support during COVID? Everyone was overloaded, I imagine. It was uh, it was very difficult. So we needed more pickers and packers because our volumes went through the roofs. Um, we didn't have enough uh, staff in the warehouse picking and packing. We just couldn't find the 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 uh, manpower um, demand. I mean, products products were out of stock. So we had to be creative in how we had to source. Uh, drivers, we needed more drivers. We had to be creative in how we mobilize more. So definitely when you're dealing with huge volumes overnight, you know, becoming even bigger, um, you have to be creative in problem solving. Uh, someone from the audience asking about, uh, you know, using uh, bots or some kind of automation for customers. So we're actually in general, it'd be good to get your thoughts on that and how you guys have used uh different automations and if actually like helps or you feel that everything still needs to be you know a lot of it manually done so chatbots have their place um certainly for for your uh, uh repeated questions so whether it's where's my order or i need to return so the the common q a's chatbots become very useful um now what we have found is particularly our customer our customer really does want that uh, personal attention and she wants to feel like she's talking to a person even if it's a simple question like you know where's my order she wants a human being to actually tell her that so there's still that element of connection that uh, the human uh, touch for the mother in particular is is very valuable yeah definitely everyone knows uh, eva from emirates mbd you know like trying to <laughs> you're trying to get to the, to the to human uh, it yeah. can be tricky yeah it can be tricky in different times uh to go more over uh to 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 the last smile component and uh you know we had a player in the region fetcher which was a is a, is, is a last smile uh, startup and it's filling a big gap because we spoke about how there's a big infrastructure gap uh, in, in the region, which takes time to build. It doesn't happen overnight and it's different players that uh, that build it. Uh, but what are what are some areas in Last Mile or others that other new startups could come and specialize in and focus? Uh, or to, to put in my question another way, what would be a startup that would come up now and solve a very critical issue uh, in your business that you feel needs to be solved. Just like payments, how many startups came about and and now you have a lot of payment providers, we have a lot of them participating with us in the conference and sponsoring. What about the other issues? Um, so look, um, I, I believe the, the region is ripe with opportunity right now. There are certainly many uh, pain points, not only from the customer, but also from service providers like us who are also customers. Um, and the pain points really stretch across uh, many, many touch points. Last mile is definitely a challenge. Um, you know, unless you have the... Um, the financial capacity um, and the infrastructure to build your own, which you know very few people have that. Um, last mile is, is prohibitive today. It's it's costly to ship cross border. It's costly to ship uh, in your local uh, uh, area, um, and it's not reliable. So certainly a gold standard, reliable. A uh, player that can come on board and say, I can do this better, faster, and in an affordable way, there's certainly a place for that. Um, again, 
all the touch points, you know, supply demand. Right now, um, you know, there are uh, thousands of brands in our particular category that are looking to come to the region. We have become that kind of go-to destination for a lot of the global brands who want to reach the local mother. Um, so enablers in, in that kind of communication are also um, uh, needed in the market. Um, content, uh, content for this community is also uh, lacking. So we're creating our own content through our blog for mothers to empower her to make decisions. But Arabic content is, is very far and in between. So there isn't enough Arabic content out there. Um, and that's certainly a need that is uh, important to solve. Uh, how challenging is it in your business that a lot of, I would guess, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of your customers uh, are with you for a period of time and then when they're out of you know motherhood like phase or or their kids are older uh, you know you lose them as customers or lose big part of their purchases that they're making on a regular basis you've invested so much in, in acquiring these customers and building the trust with them uh, how does that affect your business when it's such a you know the lifetime of a customer is this short so we are actually one of the most uh, well-positioned businesses and fortunate business in that we have the longest lifetime value, um, especially with Mom's World, because we cater to the mother um, in her pregnancy, usually third trimester of pregnancy, and she stays with us all the way till the child is preteen, till he's he or she is 12 years old, um, across different life stages. So the baby, the toddler, the preschool, uh, the school, and then, uh, you know, the, the, the 12 to 13 year old. So our lifetime is very long. Uh, this is a customer who's super loyal. She's very viral um, and she's your greatest ambassador. And um, in this part of the world, the average mom has two to three children. So if she's happy with you with that first child, she's going to come back to you for the second and third child. And she's endorsing you not only to her friend, but to her entire neighborhood. And this is very different than someone buying, for example, a phone or an electronic or uh, you know an outfit where it's a it's a sporadic and an in and out purchase. We really do build loyalty. This is reflected in our lifetimes of our customers. It's reflected in our very strong uh, cohorts, um, and this is why our business is is an interesting one. What's what's your growth uh, like tactics or strategy? Uh, maybe at the beginning when you first started. Let's say your first. If you can tell us actually about your first uh, thousand customers or the, the initial customers when you're still a small team, and then you can maybe a little bit more about what you do now and how is that different in acquiring uh, customers? Sure. So look, um, I'm, I'm not gonna talk to you about how we acquire customers, <laughs> but I will talk to you about what our objectives are. Um, in, in that in that exercise. So um, again, Mums World is about uh, creating a platform that's going to empower moms to make the most informed decisions for their children. Uh, we are a business that's driven by uh, a DNA of impact. You empower a mother with the tools and resources. You then empower her child. You empower a child. You, you, know, you create positive impact. That's our driver. And so when we think of how we reach this mother, how we talk to this mother, that's in the back of our mind. And we think not, how do I want to go and grab a mother with a 50 dirham off or a 10% off or a, you know, a steel deal? That's irrelevant to us. And in fact, in the first five years, we didn't discount 
any prices on Mom's World. We were running at everyday low prices and we didn't have to go up and down in prices. We only started you know, doing that when the market became much more rampant in these price wars. Um, but what drives us in our acquisition and in our retention is what do I need to do today to make a mother's life easier? What products does she need that she's missing? What service does she need that's going to make her life easier? And what can I do that's going to create an unfair advantage in the market? Today, we have the widest range in our vertical for mother, baby, and child. We carry everyday low prices. So we carry authentic product in their low prices. And we have a community of 2.5 million mothers who are constantly engaging. And this is all part of our acquisition strategy. So I think the long and short answer, Ray, that I would answer is in building a business that has long term sustainability, the way we look at it is, what do I need to do to build a business that has true, true, real customer value? Not so focus on product. Yeah. A product and your narrative. What's your narrative? It's not your price discount that comes and goes. Um, it's, your, it's not your steel deal. It's what are you trying to do as a business that can solve a customer's problem? And this is what drives us. I, I think that yeah, I, I agree with that. Like focusing on the, the the customer and the product in large parts can allow you with time to build this loyalty uh, and fill the gap that people really need. But then with a lot of you know founders or or companies, uh, when you have giants, you know, also competing with you on the same products, they're running massive budgets of of ads. They're running different things that are going around and discounts, trying to steal your customers. Uh, how do you maintain that? So you still need to, you know, acquire that customer, right? So what, what you're saying with loyalty and with like having a big trust with the brand and word of mouth also helps a lot. But your first customers or even as you continue to acquire customers, what do you do? Uh, not just you as one of as, as a startup founder uh, or someone for, trying to grow their business, um, and especially when you're you're competing with a lot of big players, right? So uh, with the likes of Amazon, it's got Prime. I mean, there are probably some products that we'll find in mom's world that I can't find somewhere else. And I think you answered that as being one of the main things that, you know, having what people, what moms are looking for. Uh, but what would you advise? You know, I, I agree with you on the, on the uh, focus on the product, on the customer, but how do you balance between that and the pressure of the now that you need to acquire, you know, X amount of customers to get X amount of revenue, to grow your business, to be profitable and so on, because that requires patience. Sure. So, I mean, again, you have to say, uh, what are your unfair advantages as a business? What makes you different and why will the customer come to you? That's the first question you ask. Not how can I copy uh, another player and do what he's doing, but do it cheaper because that's short term. What do I need to do as a business that makes me different and that's relevant to the customer? So for us as Mums World, the first thing we knew we had to do is we say, you know, when you've shopped on Mums World, you've shopped everywhere. What does that mean? That means a mother who wants to come and buy her, her basic, you know, Chico or Greco or Peg Perego, or she wants to buy that exclusive niche find that she can't find anywhere. When she comes on Mom's World, she's going to find that. So the first thing we had to do is build a very comprehensive catalog. That's the first thing. So that's how you acquire customers, by making sure that you have a range that's unparalleled. That's first. The second thing that we believed was an unfair advantage and that's long-term sustainable for a business is 
is everyday low price. What we're telling the customer is, listen, I'm going to buy something at X. And, I, and the supplier tells me that I can sell it between X and Y, X being the lowest and Y being the highest. And I'm always, always going to promise you that I'm going to price it at X. If a competitor comes in and goes below cost, so i.e. prices it less than what he bought it, he's losing money, in other words, you know what? I will match that. I will price match that guarantee. No questions asked. So if a competitor decides to go lower, first of all, I'll match it, but then I'm going to pick up the phone, I'm going to call the supplier and say, what's going on? And then the um, and to kind of manage that. So everyday low price customers know when they come to mom's world that they're going to get fair value for money year year day in day out throughout the year and that's very very important of authentic products not uh wrong product yeah. authentic product the third thing is mom's world is where mothers are you know we are the biggest community of mothers we are in um, in all the mother-frequented institutions, we have partnerships, exclusive partnerships with most of them. So, you know, we become kind of omnipresent in the community of mothers. That's also one of our unfair advantages. And we have many of these. So the long and short answer is to, to acquire a customer, you have to have a product or a service that's relevant. But more important than that, you have to have a product or service that's relevant and unique, and you have to own it authentically. And this is what Mums World has built over the years. Uh, one of the uh, people from the audience is asking, which is a good question for someone who's just starting up and maybe you need to go back kind of like in the years to, to when you're just starting up. Uh, he's asking, how do you get suppliers on board when you're just starting up and you're still very small? So you spoke about how, you know, having complete, right. you know, all the products ready, but when you're just starting up or you're still small, uh, you're a small player. So suppliers don't care about you or, and this actually you know, is, is, is something that many startups face regardless what business you're in when you're a nobody when you first start and you have to prove yourself and, and get people to, to, you know, buy what you're saying. That's a great question, actually. That's a great question. Um, you know, it's the chicken and egg story. You can't, yes. uh, you can't sell product before customers. You can't get customers before you sell, before you have the product. Um, so look, uh, for us, when we launched, like I said, um, there wasn't a vertical pure play for mother, baby, and child. E-commerce was considered by a lot of, particularly our vertical, to be a fad. So it's coming, it's going, nobody believes in it. So when we were knocking on the doors of suppliers, many of them said, not interested, brick and mortar is, is where customers, they have to touch and feel the product. Nobody believed it. Um, so just to give you perspective, um, we uh, we went live um, on Mums World at end of October of 2011, and we had 15,000 products, 15,000, one 5,000 products. And you know how we got that? Not because the suppliers believed in e-commerce, they didn't. Um, not because they believed in us, they didn't even know us, but because they believed in our story. Because you have to go in there with your vision. And you have to say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a very low barrier to try it and to trust me. You know what? You're going to give me your catalog. I'm going to merchandise and market your catalog. And you need to give me three months to prove to you that I'm going to sell more than you've ever sold. And you come yeah, to an that's, arrangement. That's a good way, yeah. Um, so it really has to be your pitch. It has to be your narrative. Um, and then you start. And then once they begin to see the traction, 
you know, you get more business and the more, and then you, then you, you know, you strike the big brands and the minute you start striking the big brands, um, you, that attracts other brands. Right now, Mums World uploads on average per week, 3000 SKUs every week on Mums World. Wow. And this is because brands are to us because they see the traction. And do you still think that there are a lot of gaps in the market missing in terms of like verticals? We've seen a lot of e-commerce startups in the region uh, that are, you know, owning certain verticals. Uh, do you think there are more gaps? Do you think that's a good approach overall if someone wants is, you know, is in e-commerce or want to start a company in e-commerce to choose a vertical and own it and try to own that vertical? Do you see that, you know, from mom's world and from other startups that are around, uh, like you can own a vertical and compete with the giants? Sure. So look, um, uh, the, the world is now moving to consolidation. Um, I think that we're seeing a lot of copycats in the market. Um, players saying, "I can do that," you know, better or faster, and they don't last very long. Um, I think certainly there's room to identify need gaps from the customer or from the uh, service providers and try to address them better. Um, but we do have consolidation, especially with e-commerce. Uh, what does that mean? That means you're probably going to see consolidation of verticals coming together uh, to cross-sell and upsell the same customer. Um, at Mums World, we believe, not we believe, we, we are today a gateway into the household. The mother is the decision maker into the household. She's the one who is um, making decisions for herself, for her, for her children, for her husband. Um, and so so the opportunity there when you have trust and loyalty with the mother is tremendous. Um, so do we as Mums World go and do other verticals ourselves or do we, you know, do we talk to others who also want to enter the vertical space? So, again, consolidation, I think, is, is key, especially given uh, the horizontal giants like the Amazons of the world and the Noon of the world that have tremendous resources, tremendous infrastructure and tremendous capacity uh, to to acquire customers, yeah. um, you need to build giant infrastructures to compete. Coming in with like small pockets and small infrastructures is going to be difficult to compete. And, and it's small margins as well. That's that's probably one of the challenges. Yeah, depending on which vertical. You know, some verticals are higher than others. Um, electronics is is small margins, but not others. What is what is your vertical? Is it, is it where does it fall on that scale? We are healthy. We are we are we are the more attractive uh, uh, space. Are, are you profitable now, or I'm not answering that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, uh, profitability is important for a business, 100%. A business that's not profitable is uh, a business that is dependent on on cash flow that's coming in constantly. Um, the, the there's a time and place for everything. So for those in the audience who are building a business, they're going to get, um, you know, just as a side note, they're going to get a lot of pressure from investors if they go down the investment round, whether it's VC or PE, where you have some investors, especially PE, saying be profitable fast. And then you have the VCs who have a longer uh, patience uh, uh, track where they say, no, no, you don't need profitability, you need scale. Um, and the, the entrepreneur is going to get pressure from both. Constantly. What's very important for the entrepreneur to know is what, how big do I want to be? How big and how fast? If you want to be very big, very fast, you can't be profitable very fast. 
If you want to be very small very fast, you can be profitable very fast. So again, you need to weigh the balance. And by the way, you can be very uh, small and profitable very fast, but you probably won't last for longer than a year or two years. So scale yeah, that balance is tricky. Yeah, it's tricky to 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 know when you know you need to push for profitability versus when you need to push for growth, and then you might have conflicting opinions as well on that uh, from your investors or different you know people involved and stakeholders. Um, someone we're going to switch to another topic. Someone in the audience also asking a question, um, which is more around financing, and I'd like to talk about that more. You've raised several rounds so far. Um, so mainly the questions around valuations and a lot of, you know, we've raised money as well. And a lot of startup founders uh, that I know have also, uh, you know, had their fair share of, you know, uh, that time when you're trying to set a price evaluation uh, for your company and then you go back and forth. And, you know, I've, a lot of the VCs also I speak to, everyone, you know, kind of knows that. There isn't really a formula to, to, you know, you can put do models and Excel sheets and all of that, but at the end of the day, it's like how much, you know, you're willing to pay and how much you feel that business value. Uh, what has been your experience with that? Uh, I mean, as you grow, you can probably apply these models more and more, but when you're first starting up with your seed round, Series A, uh, how do you set a price? And then which price, like how, how should founders think in terms of what price to accept and what's good for them? Yeah. Um, so it depends. This has a lot of uh, dependencies. Um, obviously, um, there are many comparables regionally, locally, and globally that are the starting point. So the first thing we did is we said, okay, e-commerce, vertical space, globally, what kind of multiples does it ask for? That's the first question we ask. So if you go to the US or Europe uh, or underdeveloped countries, what typically are the multiples that e-commerce players that are verticals like us that have similar metrics to us, what can they ask for? So that's the starting point. And because that's what you go to the investors with. And you say, look at what's happening in the US and we're very similar. So you should be valuing, valuing us similarly. Now, having said that, um, it, like you said, it really does depend on, on your pitch. It depends on your business. It depends on you as a founder, how well or how badly you can actually sell it. And it depends on how desperate you are. So um, in our A round, we closed, we were oversubscribed to our A round very quickly. Um, we got several term sheets on our table. And for us, it was kind of a pick and choose. We didn't choose the highest valuation. We didn't choose the lowest. We chose in between because we like these investors and that's what we stuck with. But guess what? Your first valuation kind of sets the tone for the future. So if yeah. you go for a lower valuation, you're kind of telling future investors that you kind of accept that. And if you go for an in too much of an inflated valuation, you might actually struggle later by having to go down, which down is run, never. Yeah. So um, it's it, it's a balance. Now, look for me. Um, this is a sensitive topic. Do I think uh, Mum's World has always been given the highest valuation? I think, uh, and as a founder, I'm obviously biased. I uh, I believe um, the value that Mum's World has created across all its uh, unit economics has has been tremendous. We've gotten very strong valuations. Could we have gotten higher? Maybe, maybe yes. Uh, were we on the end top end of the spectrum? Certainly not. Were we on the bottom? We were not. We were kind of in the middle. 
But how, if I how have many rounds? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. We've done five rounds. So five we've done rounds. we've done our seed, our A. We did a women only round, which was a strategic round, um, and we did two other rounds uh, post that. And how, what's the average uh, time from start to finish? So the uh, the seed round took us a week. The A round took us a month. A week! Uh, wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah. So the seed round, and again, that's a that's a different uh, conversation altogether, and, and we'll talk about that uh, separately. So seed and A were super fast. The B round took us a very long time. The B round was we weren't small anymore. We weren't big yet. We were kind of in the limbo land. And this is kind of where most businesses struggle. We didn't need a little money. We needed significant cash to, to start scaling much faster. Um, and so with that, we had to talk to a lot of investors. We had to negotiate a lot of valuation uh, debates. Uh, so that, I would say, the B round was our most difficult round by far. Um, and then the next round was took us about, I think, six months. Um, and the round after was shortly, shortly thereafter. We're raising, we're raising now, we're closing around now, uh, which we started uh, recently. Uh, this is, um, I would say, our uh, most important round. We're very, very, very excited about this round because we are in hyperscale mode, um, lots of exciting initiatives. And this is really something that's going to take our customer to the next level and us and the customer to the next level. So this is an exciting round, and it's the biggest. Amazing, today. yeah. Good luck with that. Uh, what do you? What would you say? I know there isn't like a perfect, you know, mix, but from your experience, uh, having founded two, you know, very successful startups, um, and had your share with, you know, fundraising and dealing with investors and so on, what is an ideal kind of uh, setup to have as a founder in terms of how many co-founders to have? And, you know, probably, you know, the, the wide uh, opinion is that having opposite, you know, skill sets. And then is it recommended to start with, a, you know, having um, VCs right away or raising from, uh, you know, friends and family or friends and family and fools, what they say. Uh, and then, you know, like the timing and what, what's ideal, you know, and how many people to have? How do you give away board seats? When should you give away board seats? Uh, how do you think of that as a founder? If an investor that you really need, let's say coming in in your you know, early days and you really need the money, but on the long term, it doesn't justify to have them uh, you know, take a big, uh, uh, let's say, board seat or vote in your business. How do you make these decisions? And uh, if you've had some also to face some of these issues and how you dealt with that would be very valuable. Sure. Um, so the first question is on, um, I hope I can remember all these, um, on the founder. Uh, uh, do you have a co-founder? Yeah. Co so my personal view um, on with, with Bait, we were, uh, we were a handful. We were five people who, who started the business and everybody came with um, an expertise area. So you had the, the tech uh, genius. You had the operational, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, mandate. You had the, um, you know, business development marketing. So everybody came as an expert in their field. And really, day one, we all just started running. So um, we, we had our area of expertise, and we knew what we had to get done, and we did it. And it was so much fun. 
and you were surrounded by people who were experts at what they did. You were surrounded by people that you were learning from and you were, you were contributing what your area of expertise was while you were learning. So it was phenomenal and enjoyed every moment of it. Fast forward um, to mom's world, uh, we were two. So um, two or you know three later on. Um, so it was more difficult. And I, I say this all the time. Great businesses are built by great people. Great businesses are great. By, businesses don't grow by themselves. They come from, from brains, from minds, from problem solving. So we started with two, then we built to three, and then we continued to build the team. And now we're 280. And our founders are still intact. And um, 100% Mom's World would not be here today without the core team that started. And yes, we were you know two, three founders, but we also had a core team who started with us on day one, who are still with the company today. And the company would not be where it is today if it wasn't for these core uh, uh, personnel who are part of the business today. And they are you know we we consider them as 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 the the family, the mom's family. Um, so that's the first question. So yes, I would strongly urge to have a partner or several partners um, that uh, complements you, uh, that strengthens you, um, and gives you kind of the the fallback on when when you need it. And you yeah, definitely, it. it's it's better to have you know it's it's less lonely and better to have you know people, especially when each one is focusing on a certain area, but comparing between you know when you had you know two or now three and five i mean for you it was a good experience you know made obviously it was a big success story uh but do you, don't you think it's like too many in a in a, in a general case not specifically in basically to have like five people as, as co-founders and then you know have to deal with each other and trust each other and then uh you know your your have different shares in the company and when you raise investment you know everyone is getting more and more diluted so what is you know just as a to look at it you know separate from your own experience but also with it you know because you had a good experience with that uh what do you say like having one like two people co-found a company or you know if you have more people that you can bring in and fill a gap bring them in and don't worry about it so uh, there has to be a clear delineation of responsibilities. At the end of the day, uh, the CEO has his or her clear responsibility. The COO does, the CMO does, or whatever you want to call them. Um, everybody has to have very, very clearly defined roles. So you can't bring in two CEOs. I mean, that's doomed for failure. Uh, you can't bring in two operational heads. That's doomed for failure. You bring in people who either complement each other or not. So 100%, and there has to be a clear um, division of respect and, and, and trust. So at the end of the day, um, so for me as, um, as, the, as the CEO of the company, um, I have certain accountabilities and responsibilities, um, and I rely on other uh, leadership to do certain things. But at the end of the day, there has to be a kind of a, 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 a final call um, and a final veto, if you like, and, and every person has their defined uh, roles. Um, and that has to be set on, on day one, 100%. Now, um, you also asked about kind of dilution and, and, and investors. Um, it's, it's incredible how 
getting the wrong investors on board early on can actually destroy the business and getting the right investors early on can actually support and drive the business forward. It really is. And I look back now at the days very early on when there were certain investors that we were considering bringing on board and we didn't. And, and we didn't because we felt that they were not aligned with our mission and our vision. And now looking back, it was um, not probably, but certainly one of the best decisions we made because had we gone down that road, um, we wouldn't be here today. So choice of- How do you decide on that though? Is it like the person you're dealing with on the investor side? Is it the more long-term strategic fit? And sometimes you could be dealing with a person and if they might leave and someone else might come. So how, how do you decide on that? So again, it, you know, uh, me... Um, being kind of on the front line on the of the fundraising it was it was the conversation so you know this is our vision for for the brand and the business this is where we want to take it are you on board or aren't you you know do you do you agree that in three years and in five years this is what we need to do in order for us to come out as the the leaders consistently and if they're not aligned you need to have tough decisions and you know you will know very early on if they're aligned or not so that conversation, and it's a regular conversation, has to be very, very clearly defined. Your numbers, you know, when you share your numbers and they say, oh, no, you need to be profitable tomorrow or next year, you know, as a CEO, that that's actually counterintuitive for the, for the business and will kill the business. So you need to make these calls. Again, it comes back to really the founder, the CEO of the organization has to say, is this what I'm trying to achieve? Is this what the business is all about? And is this investor going to open the doors or are they going to actually uh, limit me and close the doors? And, and once they're in and if someone, you know, let's say, made a wrong decision in getting the wrong investor in and or not you might just decide, where do you draw the lines as a founder with your let's bring you to the other question with your board with your investors you know as a founder you and your advice to, to others as well to other founders where do you draw the line with your board with your investors do you like set certain you know these are my values that i go by and i wouldn't you know that would be good. Just like, how do you think of that? How do you uh, create a set of rules for that? So look, you, you have corporate governance. There are certain things that are um, the, the way you, you operate with your board is, is very clear. Um, it's your job uh, as the CEO of the company to, to uh, manage uh, the board and keep them. At the end of the day, look, shareholders come into the business because they want to return. So, you know, there's no... And it's your responsibility as a shareholder or as the founder of this business to ensure that they do get their returns. And you do that by ensuring the business is growing, the customer is satisfied, um, et cetera, and all the touch points and the unit economics are working. So that's your job. Um, so um, so you need to manage the, the board relationship to ensure that they are um, uh, the communication is clear, communication is transparent, uh, the goals are, are defined and that you're aligned. Um, that's, part of your, that's part of your role as, as the CEO. Now, look, there will always be times when you will have debates, when you may not agree, that's fine, that's part of uh, uh, any business, um, but you need to manage it, just like you manage a, a, a peer or an employee or a boss. Um, we have been very fortunate as Mums World. We've had a, a great uh, set of investors. We've had fantastic uh, 
shareholders. We're very fortunate that our, our board are not only extremely, extremely valuable uh, to the business, but they have opened a lot of doors for us, both here and in Saudi. Um, so we are blessed, but we took our time. We took our time in, in finding these investors. Um, and you know we, we're gonna take them across the line with us um, and ensure that these shareholders get the returns that they have, you know, they put their faith and trust in us. And we, we're gonna make sure that we continue to build the business to, to ensure that all stakeholders get, get what they uh, kind of bet for. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like shareholders, like you're saying, they're, they're, they're trusting, uh, putting their trust in, in the startup, the founders and in the startup and the company. And it's it's the kind of duty of the founders to give that return back uh, and, and, and work hard towards that. Uh, and, and in general, from the region, you know, and a lot of, you know, the the my conversation with other founders and, and with VC, everyone is is generally you know, very supportive. Uh, and I think having an ecosystem that's that's kind of like close and small helps as well because everyone wants to keep their reputation and so on. I think the main uh, area where there could be some challenges for founders is like you said, when there's difference in opinion. So it's basically, you know, people having different opinion when you have to kind of, you know, kind of as a founder say, this is, you know, this is what we're gonna do and stick to it. Uh, regardless what the damage could be because sometimes some founders could be raising a series a and they have one of their seed investors that they want to invest again so you want to kind of please them but at the same time you need to do what's good for the business that's mainly my question like how do you as a founder you need to do you need to put you know a set of like rules and values and say no matter what the risk is yes this i'm gonna stick to this you know no yeah, I mean, look, um, you're talking uh, probably to Just a sec. Uh, um, uh, the, the the classic example. Um, I am. Um, what's the right way to put it? Um, the 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 communication on Mum's World vision, mission, and plans is very clear to to employees and to our, our shareholders and our board, etc. Um, and I am um, a forceful advocate of that. And I have many, many, many times said no to decisions that I believe were wrong for the business. I've said them to shareholders. I've said them to board members. I've said them to uh, uh, founders, other you know partners, um, and I'm not shy to to say that. Now, having said that, um, as a founder of the business, I don't have all the answers. I'm very open to understanding, to learning, to looking at different perspectives, um, to perhaps having that paradigm shift to to view things in a different light. But at the end of the day. Um, I'm going to have to make that call and I've had to make some tough, tough decisions. And now to date, yeah, nine years into mom's world, um, I look at all of the decisions where I have said, no, this is not going to happen on a board level. And they have actually been the right decision, including decisions around profitability, around scale, around uh, infrastructure, around uh, growth, um, all of that. Um, we have, alhamdulillah, so far made some good calls for the business. And we will we will make ma mistakes. But um, as long as we are, you know, having these conversations that are transparent with the board and learning from them and taking advice, and I have taken a lot of advice and I will continue to take a lot of advice, um, you have to balance that. But again, as founders, you cannot, 
you cannot bend and, and nod your head to every um, move of the wave because the wave is constantly going to change and different people are going to tell you different things and you need to make the decision that's right for the business based on yeah, your no, judgment. No, no one knows you know, your business more than you. You know, The founders know their business the best. Um, there, there's another question that someone from the Oz is asking, which is actually a good question. Uh, early on when you're starting a company and you've went through that cycle kind of twice as well, uh, like you said, you need to be running around, getting everything done. Uh, and then when the business grows, it becomes more, you bring more people in, you have hundreds of people now working in. Were there any kind of like skills that you had to undo when you're, when you're kind of like after bait went and, and uh, uh, was back at it again, you know, small team, you need to get, uh, do things in your own hands, get things up and running. Uh, how, how is that for you in terms of like going through that cycle uh, twice? Sure. So um, everything that I do at Mom's World has been uh, uh, learned from, from start, everything. Um, I am out of my comfort zone at Mom's World every single day, starting from 2011. So the answer to your question is um, the world is changing, the ecosystem is changing, e-commerce is evolving, we're operating in an undeveloped ecosystem, we're constantly, constantly learning. I am constantly learning. Um, so um, I come from a traditional uh, marketing background um, where I learned how to build uh, brick and mortar driven businesses. I had to bend that and start from scratch. Um, you know, uh, Bait was a very, very, very different business uh, also to, to Mom's World. Um, I worked in Europe and in the US in, in retail, uh, FMCG businesses. Again, a complete different shift to what we do now. So the reality is um, we are in constant learning uh, mode. Um, and I am, and the team is, and the, the other uh, partners are all avid, avid, hungry learners. And I think this is one of the reasons why Mom's World has been able to evolve very fast and be fluid because we're constantly looking at adapting, evolving, and, and improving. Um, so, yeah, it's... it's um, this is not for someone who wants a nine to five business as usual job. It's constantly evolving and changing. Now, um, my greatest kind of coming out of my comfort zone is, um, you know, the, this whole notion of also leadership and management. So in the early days as the as leader um, and as the manager, you're very, very operationally involved in every detail, you know, everything that's happening, you know, who placed what, where, um, every detail is uh, looked at by you. As the business grows, you cannot be there. You cannot be everywhere uh, to everyone. And so the, for me, the greatest uh, challenge has been over the years to kind of move out of the day-to-day -day operations and coming to um, the comfort um, where I don't know everything. 
you know, where I don't know necessarily what's happening in this department or why this happened or et cetera, because you simply can't be there now. Um, I probably am more uh, perhaps involved um, than most uh, CEOs um, just because of the nature of the, the, the growth of our business. Um, and so are the other leaders in the organization. I consider us as, as, as the leaders in Mom's World um, to be very actively involved because we are truly, truly uh, customer driven and customer obsessed. We are the customer. So if there's a pain point with the customer, we are very much involved in the, the, the operations to, to quickly fix it. Amazing. Mona, you've done, you've done an amazing job. Uh, there's a lot of people out here, you know, we're listening to different tips and things that you've done. I would love to keep this going, but we, we've reached the end of our time. Uh, this has been awesome. Thank you very much uh, for being on here. We really enjoyed this. Thank you very much, Ray. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Thank yeah, you. Bye. Bye.